On this episode of the podcast, I have with me Ryan Fox. He is the VP of Engineering at Super. We're going to be talking about developer internal tooling. The team over there at Super, uh, Ryan's behind that, done some really incredible stuff towards the journey of CICD. You know, we're going to talk about where things have started, You know, what prompted some of these initiatives and their journey along this uh, internal tooling path. And I'm, I'm super excited to, to talk to you about this, Ryan. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Amir. Absolutely. Before we dive in, let's start off uh, just to get to know uh, you and Super a little bit better. If you could tell everyone what does Super do and um, what are some of those responsibilities you have as uh, the VP of engineering? So Super is, uh, as a company, um, we've actually gone through quite a number of company names. We started off as a company called Snap Travel, um, which is really focused on the travel industry and trying to leverage AI to disrupt the travel agent market, really. So our goal was it was the ability to take what travel agents could really provide, which is discounted rates on booking travel, and take that value proposition, but do it with AI, do it at scale. Um, so for the first roughly five years of our business, um, we started in 2016. Uh, we've essentially been we found this really strong product market fit of bringing great deals to users at scale. And this is really the sweet sauce that really propelled our company. And over that time, we grew to over a billion dollars in sales. Um, generally, when I when I joined the company uh, back in 2018, we were roughly around 18 people. Now we're around 230. Um, when I joined the engineering org, was roughly around seven folks. Um, now we're at about 80 in our engineering org, um, split across our various disciplines, including product engineering, infrastructure and tools, our platform engineering, data engineering as well. And in the past couple of years, um, we've really been looking to expand on our mission as a company, um, which is we took what worked for us in travel and thought, how can we become really a savings destination across more use cases for users? So not just around booking travel, but around shopping um, for different um, physical goods and digital goods, um, as well as we spun out a, a fintech product as well that we have, we call it Super Cash. And we created this super app to unify everything together, um, where again, bringing together travel, e commerce, fintech into the one location where, which has become a destination for users to save money no matter what they're trying to do. Um, so, in general, um, we're about providing more of life, what life has to offer to more people, and particularly targeting customers. And who have generally are not as well off financially. Um, so that's a little bit about us today. Awesome. As VP of engineering, now you mentioned um, you know you're responsible for a fair number of people. Now, uh, what are what are some of your responsibilities versus other teams that you own? So in terms of my high level responsibilities are um, one is certainly growing the org, thinking about and when you're and as you're growing, thinking about what are the right team structures at the team level, for example, what is the right team composition as it relates to relationship between product design, engineering, QA, and and then thinking about it from a little bit of higher level, which is, all right, let's think about how a couple of teams interface, right? So how do relate, how do folks that are working on related teams, what are their sort of interaction modes? How, what does the dependency graph look like between teams that can depend on each one another? How do we emphasize autonomy and ball balancing ownership as well. And then sort of thinking about at the at the larger level, um, which is what are the right 
what's the right organizational design? And, and this has really evolved. And I think one of the interesting things in being in a, in a startup and seeing it go through this sort of scale-up phase is how the right structure at, point, at any point in time is, is different, right? It evolves as the company grows. Um, so we've gotten under a number of, of organizational shifts that it's helped to help to lead. And so thinking about that thing, the most recent one, which is actually kind of interesting, we call it mission-aligned teams, where we bring together essentially squads that include not just technical folks, but also non-technical folks as well, um, forming around these missions as teams. Um, so we've moved away from sort of back-end, front-end splits or engineering and then non-engineering and really create these full-stack mission-aligned teams that, that work um, with relatively low dependencies uh, in one another and can almost operate like little subunits or little sub-businesses unto themselves. Um, so I spend a lot of time on that. Um, so that's sort of related to org design. I also spend a lot of time on uh, performance evaluation, making sure that we're retaining great talent, providing avenues for growth um, for folks in our org, and really being a destination that people want to come to because they want to grow in their career. Because um, I think as a, as a smaller company, it's something that we can really offer as a competitive advantage compared to joining a larger company. On top of that, I also still am heavily involved technically. Um, I'm still an engineer at heart, despite growing more into the people leadership space. Um, so I still support on so some of the things that I continue to be a subject matter expert on because I help build them within the organization, um, although I actively try to hand this off. But in general, been around big technical um, decisions that we're making, one of which I'm, I'm looking forward to covering in this chat, which is around our movement to continuous deploy. And um, one final piece I'll touch on is, as an engineering leader, um, is being cognizant of the fact that engineering is a vehicle to drive business value at the end of the day. And so I, I'm a part of the leadership team at the company, um, which has cross-functional um, leads from across cross company, helping to influence the sort of strategic direction and execution of those strategic ideas at the company. Um, so that's another part of my role, ensuring that engineering works holistically and effectively um, with other parts of the company and that we're trying to globally prioritize for driving ultimately that, that customer value, that business value, um, as opposed to just honing on, on sort of the more technical side. Absolutely. I, I have to admit, I'm proud of myself right now because I um, I had my daughter's voice uh, in my ear saying, Dad, do not do not say super at the end of this. I did very good. I, I resisted it. Um, I'm going to pat myself on the back later, um, but I appreciate it. it. Sounds like a super cool place. You have a great background to talk about this. Having seen the inner workings, scaling, kind of the journey, we're going to talk about you know that that developer internal tooling uh, journey that you referred to, getting to continuous deployment, which everyone, a lot of companies are on that journey, right? Big, small, you know, startup, enterprise, everyone's trying to get there. Let's take a step back. Um, <clears throat> I just want to make sure when we talk about you know this continuous deployment um, discussion and, and developer internal tooling. Take us back and, and help us understand, you know, where where you started. You saw this, you know, you've you've built a lot of this, been a part of it. Tell us where you guys kind of started as a, as a jumping off point here. All right, for sure. So when I joined uh, as a company, we are using AWS. Um, so in general, we were we were as a company born in 2016. Um, we are sort of in that cloud native era already. Um, so the company started off on AWS and. Specifically, didn't really have 
any DevOps presence at the company. So what do you do? You, as, as probably any startup should, you leverage what works sort of out of the box. Um, and so we largely leveraged Elastic Beanstalk, which was popular at the time um, on AWS. And we used it to manage our deployments. Um, in general, we also started on GitLab. So we used a little bit of GitLab CI to be able to actually manage those deployments too. And that's sort of where we started. And as we started to grow and start to mature and bring on some DevOps talent into the company, you know, Elastic Beanstalk was really not cutting it um, anymore. It was very slow. Um, each individual deploy would take upwards of 30 minutes just to deploy. Um, and correspondingly, it was very slow to roll back, um, which is very important as well um, at the time. If you can't roll back quickly, it really limits your ability to take risk in deploys. And I think that's important as, as it relates to deployment velocity. It also provided relatively poor visibility on what was actually happening during the deploy process and our ability to take active action when things were rolling out, if something was going awry, um, and, and led to generally there are certain conditions where it would just get stuck. Um, you couldn't really do much about it. So, so that was sort of where, where we started from. And I won't say it was, a, it was a terrible situation or anything like that, but there was certainly a lot of room for improvement. So one of our first bets on this journey, and, and one of the things I'll emphasize as I walk through this, is that there's a lot that has had to happen and for it to build up. Um, when I joined the company, you know, four, four plus years ago, initially I came in with this daunting thought of we all kind of want to get to CD. It's sort of it's a it's a very attractive term in the industry. Everyone would love to be there, but it's an immense amount of work to get there. There's a lot of pre-work that sort of needs to happen um, to be able to do this safe and reliably and to really achieve achieve those benefits. So the first step for us was migrating to Kubernetes uh, from Elastic Beanstalk. Um, this, again, gave us a lot more control, was dramatically faster, brought our deploys down from about 30 minutes to a few minutes. Um, and in general, was one of the things that unlocked a lot of future, future things um, that allow us to continue on this journey. Um, so that was step one. And we obviously started leaning into pieces of that ecosystem, for example, leveraging Istio um, and leveraging other sidecars that sort of enhance. And, and once you're part of that Kubernetes ecosystem, you get to take advantage of, of all of that as well. So that was, that was the first step. And then a second, I'd say a second milestone for us in this journey was, was around automated verification of our deploys. Um, so what I, what I mean by that is, is you leveraging end-to-end -end testing. So because in general, if you have to manually verify your deploys, you just can't get to CD because there's just not enough human bandwidth to do that. Um, so you need to ultimately have automated verification. And our actual main motivation at the time of doing this was we were having humans manually review our deploys to make sure nothing was fundamentally broken. Um, but of course, one, there's only so much that a human can review. So you're gonna, so it's quite error prone. Um, and two, it's just a big time suck. Of, of human resource. Um, so we started investing in, in, our end, in an end-to-end testing framework, and we started building out hundreds of end-to-end -end tests over time um, that are still running to this day. So that was milestone two is, all right, how can we make sure we're deploying uh, something that we, we believe, or at least we have sufficient coverage to say, is safe to deploy? The next milestone um, along this journey um, was around, all right, now how do we bring together these pieces 
so that within our CI CD framework. So specifically leveraging GitLab CI's pipelines. Um, so where we could, before a deploy would go out, it would run the end-to-end test suite. It would validate that the release was good um, in, a, in a staging environment, and then it could go out. So this was sort of milestone three was really enhancing our CI framework. And one of the important stepping stones in doing so as well was we we call it per branch deployments that we started creating. So when it comes to, for us, when it comes to a pull request um, that we issue, um, one of the things that was we found was blocking our ability to deploy quickly was we needed to really have a stable staging, essentially. We needed, once something was merged into our master branch, we needed that to be deployable at all times. So the way we, we did that was every pull request now would have something integrated into the pipeline for the pull request that would deploy it to an environment. All right, that would connect to staging for the rest of our services. So now at this point, all the QA that a developer would need to do or a QA team member would jump in to do could all be done on the pull request itself before it ever got merged. So this is an important stepping stone in that CI CD work as well. That would also ensure we have a healthy master pipeline as much as possible. Right. And then one next milestone was around canarying support. So in addition to the end-to-end um, testing, uh, one of the things that we still did at this point in time was we needed to manually monitor our releases once they went out. We would look at certain dashboards that we had created. We would look at, um, again, our understanding of what it meant to be healthy. Um, and a human would be doing this. And while that, that worked, when you're doing deploys less frequently, um, if you, again, are deploying at a rate of every pull request is its own deploy, this is no longer sustainable. Again, the human cost is, is too high. Um, so we started, we rolled out a canary framework, um, which would allow us to um, simultaneously compare what's currently in our production environment with uh, the new version that was in, was being promoted. Um, and it would compare these metrics that we deemed to be critically important, um, that there was no significant regression. Um, and then it would automatically deploy if it was, if all looked good. So building out our canary framework um, was also an important stepping stone here. And then the last piece I'll say is making this all really easy was an important piece. Um, and the way we did it is we, we really leveraged internally created chatbot. Um, to do this, we called Eliza after, I think Eliza was the name of the first chatbot ever created. Um, so we called it Eliza. And now wait, and, and now basically all the, all the CD, um, can be manually configured um, with Eliza with simple Slack commands um, that allow us to control this whole process. For some of our, now not all of our repositories or services um, were migrated to this CD approach at the same time. So our Eliza bot would support, hey, this is a release that has to be manually thumbed up by everyone who merged in a pull request. They would say, yes, this is good to go before it could be deployed. It would support a model where this will deploy once a day with some cadence. Um, it would support a model for every PR being deployed. So in general, for us, we're a very Slack-first company. Um, so having this just directly accessible in Slack to kick everything off was hugely beneficial for our productivity. So that was sort of the main, those are the sort of the main steps to get us to this point. Absolutely. I, and I appreciate that. That's actually a great, great overview. 
you mentioned one one of your jobs obviously is to drive business value and obviously where from where you started to where you ended um or where you're at now not ended that's uh, still a journey uh, i'm sure there was business value and, and that's and that's obviously where you guys have made an investment in this process early on did you guys were you trying to quantify an ROI? Were you trying to establish some metrics so you could understand, hey, if we're going to invest time and resources to get to CD, we can evaluate if this was uh, you know, worthwhile. I mean, it's worthwhile for, for technical reasons, but worthwhile from the business you know, and, and the actual ROI side of things. Yeah, for sure. So the main metric we looked at, um, and we are a highly data-driven company. Um, it's one of our core values as a company that we we share and we discuss all the time. Um, and so our main, our main uh, we relied on some Dora metrics um, for this over over time. The main ones we really focused on though were deploy time and deploy frequency as metrics. And when it comes to deploy time, I could say overall this is something we tracked. We partnered with um, a third party um, to integrate a bunch of these sort of oversight metrics um, for our for our systems. Um, and, and we tracked it over time. So I can say on the CD front, we decreased our deploy times from roughly around 36 hours. So it would take about a day and a half to two days for us to release some, some pull request um, down to now under three hours. And that includes the time that we that includes time that we don't deploy in the evenings and the weekends. So right now our deploy time is for most practical PRs released during day is under an hour. It's merged and then into production in under an hour, which is pretty crazy. And that is something, and it, and as it relates to to business value, I think it's it's important to recognize that in general, your speed of iteration is probably your one is one of, if not the biggest competitive advantage you have as a smaller company um, compared to a larger company. Um, this as much as you can do to close the loop on hypothesis implementation. Test like roll out and implement test um, and get back to your next hypothesis is likely to be the biggest determinant of if you're going to be successful or not, um, because your ability to test, to pivot, to to change, uh, and how quickly you can get through that cycle um, is is paramount to your ability to react to the market conditions, to try to find that product market fit, to try to expand that product market fit, etc. So I think there's a very very quick tie, quick tie. To business value, and you see it in our in our systems today, where things are just moving at a rapid speed in terms of our our number of experiments we're launching every week has gone up significantly, and yeah, just in general um, across the board, it's been a big improvement. That's actually interesting. I was gonna maybe I'm gonna piggyback off of what you said. I think you mentioned speed of iteration is a competitive advantage. Um, you guys can experiment more and um, and, and and make faster adjustments um, when you're looking at that and you're and you're working with the product team you're working with the business side how, how have you helped them understand that advantage exists for them now or how, how are they impacted or is it more hey like you know it's something on your side you understand and it's the engineering team is moving faster like, how, how does the business understand that it is a I guess a competitive advantage for them I think the maybe the easiest way to understand it is Put yourselves in the shoes of a stakeholder, of a especially a business stakeholder. Maybe it's a maybe in a smaller company, it's a co-founder. 
maybe in a slightly bigger company, it's a VP or a director. Or, but I think we all probably have, have experienced in in some regard someone who just really wants something to get out, right? About a certain project, whether it's a pet project or something that deemed to be very important, they just want it to be out the door. And there's probably a little that's more frustrating than hearing the work's all done. We just can't get it out the door. We have to wait. Um, the deployments are broken. The like it's just going to take us till next week to get this out, or it needs four days to canary. You know these sorts of things. And I think that when we we had that problem, right? We it would take a long time. Things would be broken. You couldn't get something out as quickly as you wanted to. Now it's extremely fast, and that problem is largely resolved. Um, so I think that it's quite clear, actually, to a lot of the stakeholders where that that value is. Um, where they don't feel that pain anymore, um, and it's kind of a it's it's a pretty magical experience to hear, hey, developer, merge something. Okay, it's in prod. As a product manager, that's a great feeling to see that, and you're very close. feel it directly. Um, it means you can move faster, um, and you aren't waiting on things that because sometimes what tends to happen, especially with product managers, is there's sort of a division, and there's engineering, there's product management, and once it's in the engineer's hands, they're it's almost like this black box a little bit that exists within engineering and and engineers can sometimes pull a trump card being like, oh, we can't release yet. We have to wait till whatever. Um, and as a product manager, you're a little bit helpless in that regard because you because you don't necessarily have the technical awareness on why. Now, you could argue it's on engineering to explain that and what have you, but there is a certain division there. Um, and I think that when that no longer is the case, when an engineer says, hey, the code's done, and it's and you just know it's in prod within an hour. That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that probably gives a lot of product managers peace of mind, and uh, they actually probably uh, appreciate the engineering side. I guess when you guys are looking at metrics and you're and you're looking at your team, right? So they, they're they're going to be impacted a specific way. What what are some of the metrics that you look at from a team perspective to see how this has impacted them? improve their lives rather. Yeah, for sure. So overall, we tried to take a, you know, of course, this is just one piece of the of the puzzle. Um, there's there's a lot more. And, and we roughly, so we host monthly um, reviews with each engineering team. Um, we review four broad areas. Um, we look at planning. So this is how well is the team doing with respect to making sure there's a sufficient backlog, Making sure that what we've put into a sprint is actually what we do in the sprint, um, because there is often you know cases where you'll run into where the team actually planned for you know these twenty tickets or these five stories or whatever it might be to be done in a sprint, but actually you complete the sprint and actually five completely different stories were done because things came up during it. So how well are we actually planning and and driving to our plan? Um, we also look at operations. So this is things like. What does our service uptime look like? Um, what does our session error rates look like? So, you know, how buggy are users perceiving the experience? Um, we also look at our bug SLA. So, we have an internal bug SLA. Whenever a bug is filed, depending on its priority, we have a certain agreed upon internal SLA around it. We look at how are the teams meeting this. Thirdly, we look at efficiency. Um, so, this is around, this is some of the metrics around deploy time, deploy frequency, um, new code percentage. So, this is a fraction of our code that we're writing that is. New code as opposed to refactored or reworked code, um, which can indicate if this changes significantly, it can indicate, hey, are we 
coding in a sustainable way, in a way that thinks a little bit more forward about what we're going to be building? Um, or are we just rewriting the stuff that we've written a, a month ago? We also do look at um, story point achievement overall and story point velocity. Um, again, although it's just one, one signal. Um, and then lastly, we look at health and culture. Um, so look overall, and some of the things we look at here are, you know, number of social events that teams are having, percentage of time that people are spending in meetings. If that's too high, it's generally pretty resentment generating. And in general, through this sort of combination of planning, operations, efficiency, health, and culture, we feel like we have a pretty balanced perspective on how the teams are performing. And, you know, it's interesting. One, I think one of the controversial topics within engineering leadership overall is how do you know your teams are successful? Uh, how do you know they're productive? How do you measure velocity and productivity? And this has been, it's, I think it's still an unsolved problem in the industry or an unsolved challenge. Um, our current approach is, or, or my opinion is that there is no one metric you can look at to be like, this is the metric that tells you that. Um, I think, although it's be lovely if something like that existed, I don't think it's realistic based on anything I've seen. Um, so our approach is to more look at this cumulative roughly around 16 metrics that we've defined and then look for overall patterns um, in this because we feel that they can, although no one metric can tell you the whole picture, collectively they can tell you a story. And the cool thing is that by doing these monthly reviews, it's led to ideas and suggestions and new approaches that have actually improved these metrics, which has been, uh, and you can see it in a very direct way. Um, one of the more interesting ones was actually one team really started to lean into pair programming um, as, as an approach um, where they coupled up all each of the developers for a sprint or two. Um, and they looked at what is the impact of this on, on these different metrics. And it was, it was actually quite astounding. Um, it was a dramatic improvement. So I'd say, yeah, by looking at these, we have found them to be useful overall. I, I, I think I, that's really awesome. It sounds like, yeah, you know, I, I love the idea that, you know, that the pair programming was uh, tested out and, and seeing value there as well. You guys are big on experimenting. I can just uh, sense from what you've been describing. And the journey seems, you know, like it's made definite progress. I guess I was going to ask you if you were to look back based on what you know now, which is a little unfair, but but based on what you know now, are there any learning lessons that you would have done anything different along this this journey? Are there anything you know any things that stand out that hey, I would have you know based on what I know now, I might have taken slightly different approaches. Um, that's a good question. Um, I think one thing that's important to be cognizant of, especially as it relates to continuous deploying some of the internal tooling, is that it's not for everyone. And it's also depend, you really have to be cognizant of when it makes time to invest in it and if it makes sense to invest in it. Um, it is a, it is a journey. Um, this, uh, that I can say that, you know, this is essentially happens over the course of years. And again, it wasn't like we decided we set up front. All right. We have this three year roadmap. We're going to get to CD. That wasn't how it happened. It was more solving smaller sets of problems that were all moving in sort of the right direction. Cause I don't think you'll, I think as a smaller, company or even a scaling company, you'll find it very hard pressed to get buy-in to say, here's my three-year plan. Um, it's just, it's too slow. It's it's going to take you way too long. They want, you want to see 
that value generated in progressive stages. And you want to, and you, reality is your three-year plan is only as good as, you know, until it gets completely derailed the next quarter. So I think that one thing I think is a, is a lesson learned or, or something interesting here is, you know, try not to bite off too much at the same time. You know, thinking maybe six months ahead can make sense. So you're not restricted to sort of quarter boundaries because those can be awkward fits for projects. Um, but I think thinking too far ahead can be perilous because it often doesn't stay that way. Um, and also, it was very hard to get buy-in from executives um, to commit to that. Um, but instead, solve smaller problems that, again, work towards a bigger picture. Um, you have sort of your mental model around this. Um, so I think that's one. I think two is that, you know, as a startup, for example, in a very early phase, it's probably not the right thing to do to invest in this. It's it's a lot of work. You need some specialized expertise and you need some, some superheroes on the DevOps side to make some of this really work well. Um, and you probably don't have access to that resource as a startup. Um, and if you do, they're probably just working on keeping the lights on anyways. So probably don't want to do this as a startup. And as a, you know, as a, as a much bigger company, getting the buy-in to go that direction is extremely difficult or it can be extremely difficult um, because of the lack of the disparate environments and just the, a lot of complexities. Also just the reality of, you know, you're more risk averse. Right. It, it, for a for a major company, it can take you know four days to do a release because the because the cost of being wrong, the cost the the risk is just not there. Um, you don't want to disrupt if you're if you're working at a company, for example, a fang company that has actually making up a huge portion of the internet's traffic. You know your cost of being wrong or a bad deploy is extremely high, and you need to be more risk averse. And getting to truly a CD model is probably not even a goal. Um, so I think, again, overall, I'd say it's not necessarily for everyone. But if you can get there in, in certain cases, it's a tremendous speed up on development. I like that. Those are those are some great takeaways. I, I know uh, we're almost at the end of our time. A couple of final questions. Um, one, if somebody just want to reach out to you and, and pick your brain on anything you mentioned on the show, what's what's a good way of doing that? Reach out on LinkedIn or shoot me uh, my LinkedIn Ryan Fox Super. There's turns out there's a lot of Ryan Foxes, so you might not find me <laughs> if you just search that. But Ryan Fox Super, you'll find me. Um, or feel free to reach out to me over email. Um, it's Ryan at Super.com. And I'm a pretty pretty passionate about this topic, so I'll be very happy to to chat with anyone. And I also want to understand what other problems or solutions others have had to this to this on their on their own journeys. Absolutely. And and if you could ask a future guest of this show to cover a topic for you that's of interest to you that you like to learn more about, is there anything that you like to hear more about? Yeah, for sure. So actually related to something within our continuous um, deployments, but in general, one of the key elements we found for this to be successful is around end-to-end testing, right? And having a really good suite. And as it turns out, that's really hard. Um, it's hard to have, and, and the hard part is, I mean, there's the initial setup of the framework and and building out the test, which is an investment. I won't say it's, it, you know, it's an investment, but I won't say it's like it's something that's more of a solved problem, so to speak. the The really hard part is maintaining that suite, um, because as you scale to hundreds of tests, there's flakiness. There's someone pushed something new that changed an existing code path that now broke these seven tests. Um, and in general, 
maintaining the efficacy of those end-to-end tests is, is a very difficult problem. And it is very human intensive. Um, so we, we invest a lot of time in that currently. There are in general alternatives out there. Um, there are companies, for example, that are starting to offer end-to-end testing as a service where you can outsource some of the test development, test maintenance. But I think in general, one thing I'd be interested in, in learning about is what are some of the best practices on, on end-to-end testing? How do you make it so it's not flaky? How do you make it so it has the right, there's the right relationship between the responsibilities of, for example, QA or QA engineers versus developers who are building features? Who's ultimately responsible? What does that workflow look like? When things break, who's on call to fix them? And are there strategies around prioritization of testing, for example? For example, perhaps there are some tests that are P0 in nature, others that are in P1 in nature, others that are P2. And could you have different pass rates along these lines? So I think in general, I'd be interested in, in learning about some of the best practices that other orgs have found to be successful, um, as this is a continued area of investment for, for us. Awesome. I think that's a great topic. Brian, uh, I appreciate you being on. Thanks for sharing a, a lot of great insights and, and, and discussion. And I can't thank you enough. Thanks so much, Amir. Absolutely. That's it for this episode. Be back again. Different guests, different topic. Until then, two things. One, if you uh, can speak to Ryan's topic, I mean, I think uh, testing and how it fits in an org. And I really like this uh, point of how do you maintain uh, the testing side? Because that does seem to be uh would be a challenge uh, reach out i'd love to have you in the show i think it'd help uh everyone and i think it'd be a well-received topic so uh let me know if you're interested in uh, being on to talk about that and secondly if you found the podcast episode um interesting useful share it with somebody else who might that's how uh the episodes have been uh, catching on and can't thank everyone uh, enough uh for doing that leave a comment review subscribe wherever you are listening until next time thank you and goodbye